Something primal flared white-hot in Haytham's chest. Over. How many more promises would he drink up like water in the desert? How many more entreaties to bide his time for one more day, one more turn, one more year? The time would never be right, never without risk. And every day that he allowed himself to be coaxed into waiting was another day that the bastard was still sucking air. Every day was a slap in the face. What is up, you guys? Welcome back to another episode where we last left off. Elias and Amethyst were finishing up their date while Haytham and Randall were lying in wait, ready to spring the trap. As always, if you're not caught up yet, I will have a link to the full playlist down in the episode description, along with links to a couple of short recap videos just to give you a sense of where we are in the story. All right, I will catch you all at the end of the episode. I'm Josh Call, and this is Last Coliseum. The carriage rattled to a stop outside the Eidolon. Both their faces were dappled with torchlight from the regular pattern of holes scored in the canvas sides that permitted sound and fresh air to filter through. The ride and the wine had lulled her into a gentle doze. She'd spent the first ten years of her life sleeping in the backs of covered wagons, and she woke with her cheek tipped against his hard, muscled shoulder. Elias must have fallen asleep too, for he didn't say anything until the driver drew wide the door and flooded the dim interior with light. As Amatha withdrew, blinking in the light that still streamed from the colored glass windows of the Eidolon, the wall but the hardiest sots had long since turned in for the evening, his boot heels clicked against the cobbles as he hopped down behind her. Thank you for tonight, she murmured, turning back to Elias. The one sellsword who was still manning the door dutifully retreated inside to allow them a private goodbye. Thank you, Elias replied. Like you said before, it's nice to go somewhere and leave behind my title. Just be me. She nodded. She knew exactly what he meant. For her, there was a kind of power in being able to escape behind the vixen mask of Lady Moonrise to give no more of herself to anyone than she chose, not even her name. She'd first felt that way when she donned the abalone mask of the Fairy Queen back in her earliest memories from her trooping days. It feels nice to be seen, she told him, stepping up onto her tiptoes to plant a kiss on his bony cheek. Good night. His face turned toward her, and he cupped her cheek in his hand as he pressed his hard mouth to hers. She flinched a little, more in surprise than rejection. But he was either too drunk to notice or too drunk to care. She was too embarrassed to rebuff him. She softened a little in his grip. It was Elias, and there were worse things than being kissed by a high lord of the keep. And she kissed him back indulgently, allowing her fingers to twist through his dark hair. His free hand crept down her back, fingertips curling around the edge of her bodice. He was hard and relentless, his body tensed like a drawn bowstring as he pressed her into himself, his sour tongue dashing against the ivory barricade of her mouth. Elias! She dipped her forehead against his aquiline nose, their lips parted wetly. Her hand had withdrawn from his hair. It was pressed flat against his chest. She felt his heart thudding against her palm. She pushed him away, gently but firmly. Good night. He stumbled back a step like a man arrow shot. A crimson flush crept up his neck and splashed across his cheeks. 
His apple bobbed in his throat, as though the words were there but couldn't escape past the rigid line of his clenched jaw. She didn't wait for an apology. She left him at the threshold, dug her shoulder into the face of the guilt maiden on the door, swept past the burly sellsword waiting inside, and darted up the stairs without a word to the sleepy-eyed porter mopping the taproom floor. It didn't occur to her that she still wasn't sleeping at the Eidolon until she was already in her attic room with the door bolted behind her. It was well past midnight when the runner appeared, breath steaming through his black veil. He's coming. Haytham lurched to his feet, shaking off the thick fingers of exhaustion that had driven him unwillingly down onto the old crate he'd been sitting on. Behind him, the rest of the spider's men slipped out of the shadowed alcoves they'd been hiding in and crowded into the mouth of the alley alongside him. An eager whisper rustled between them, a few muttered words in the vulgar tongue or in Kadari. The new choke point was a far cry from the one they'd first chosen. For one thing, it was barely two score paces from his new room down the street from the Eidolon. Already there had been four Greycloak patrols that came prowling past, although these had gotten noticeably rowdier and less attentive as the hours crawled by. There was no river and no room. They'd have to do their killing in the open. The time the keepers took in responding wouldn't be measured in minutes or hours, but in seconds. Three times Randall had reminded him that he'd have to make it quick. All the long years he'd spent waiting on this moment, and it'd be over in the space between heartbeats. The sellsword appeared next to him and fitted a black quarrel into his crossbow with a decisive click. Are you ready? Haytham didn't say anything. He breathed out long and slow and sank into that familiar quicksilver ready stance. At the end of the long boulevard, a hundred paces toward the western sky, close enough already that they could have dropped him with one well-placed volley, the carriage appeared. Elias scowled at the backs of his driver's knees through the tiny holes in the canvas, his own feet propped up on the bench seat facing him. His eggs throbbed. He'd been so confident that she wanted him. All the sidelong glances, the little comments she'd made about the silly barmaid practically wagging her tits at him, that kiss. He'd been so surprised when she pushed him off that speech hadn't returned to him until the inn's door was already swinging shut. The smell of her still hung thick on the air in the carriage, cinnamon and lavender. It made him angry. He almost told the driver to stop the carriage so he could walk back to the lifts, clear his head in the crisp night air. But already her scent was dissipating. Now that she was gone, he was beginning to think straight. He wanted to wash the taste of her out of his mouth. The girl at the nave hadn't been half bad. She was ripe enough, with thighs like ham hocks from a diet of dramhouse food. Best of all, she was willing. Why wouldn't she be? He was a high lord of the grey, bloody keep, sixth in line to the governor's seat. A girl like that would be lucky if he so much as spat on her. He slapped open the small screen between him and the driver. The man's calves shifted slightly as he peered down at the opening. Turn us around, White Rose demanded. I feel like a nightcap. The driver flicked the reins, and the carriage lurched sideways. Why is he stopping? What's he doing? The carriage cut a wide arc as the driver pulled hard on the reins, still some fifty or so steps down the cobbled street from their ambush point. 
Haytham gaped at the broad side of the carriage, that silk-thin canvas siding behind which lay his quarry. He was so close. The Kadari muttered a curse in his harsh desert language. One of his men spat on the alley floor. Both lowered their crossbows from their shoulders. He made us. Had he? The brawler glared out from the shadows after his quarry. The driver was a field mouse from this distance, perched atop the little toy carriage below one of the pole-mounted lanterns that illuminated the streets of the Golden Quarter. But even with the driver's features wreathed in shadow, Haytham saw no urgency to his movements. He never even glanced back at their hiding place in the alley as he wheeled the carriage toward the coppers. The spider's man said something else in his home tongue, and all around him there was a scrape of steel as the sellswords stowed their weapons. Haytham never looked back. He stood stock still at the alley's mouth, glaring after the carriage even as Randall repeated the order in words he could understand. It's over. Something primal flared white hot in Haytham's chest. Over. How many more promises would he drink up like water in the desert? How many more entreaties to bide his time for one more day, one more turn, one more year? The time would never be right, never without risk. And every day that he allowed himself to be coaxed into waiting was another day that the bastard was still sucking air. Every day was a slap in the face. No more days. No more waiting. Randall knew what he was going to do even before Haytham did. Before the brawler could lurch one more step toward the retreating shape of the carriage, the sellsword sprang at him, seizing Haytham by the arms and slamming him up against the brick wall. The brawler snarled and snapped at them, thrashing in their grip. It took four of them to manage it, but they held him fast. The spider's man leaned in close, so close that his matted beard grazed the brawler's cheek. Haytham's eyes rolled. The carriage had already shrunk to half its size, picking up speed as it approached the corner around which it had come. It's too late, Randall murmured. Tonight he lives. You can walk back to the coppers, or we can carry. Haytham's boot heels found the brick behind him, and his brow smashed into the sellsword's nose with a warm red crunch. The Kadari staggered back as the brawler wrenched himself free from the sellsword's grasp. One of them had his crossbow hanging from a thong on his belt. The leather cord snapped as Haytham scooped it off his hip and tore after the carriage. The carriage was a white smudge in the distance. He could barely see it through his own sweat and the sellsword's blood stinging his eyes. The hairs on his nape prickled. He could sense the crossbows leveled at his back, could hear the slap of their feet against the cobbles only a few steps behind. He sank to his knee, cobbles knocking painfully against the bone as he jammed the crossbow into the cleft of his shoulder. Someone shouted behind him. He squeezed the lever an instant before they tackled him. Elias heard the shout. He twisted around in his seat and peered through the little holes just before the carriage skidded around the corner. He saw a figure bathed in lamplight, his cropped red hair gleaming like new pennies as he scowled down the length of a black crossbow. The quarrel flashed forth like a bolt of moonlight as a mob of dark figures enveloped the devil and drove him snarling to earth. He heard a dreadful wet crunch as the bolt struck home, and the carriage lurched forward, slamming Elias against the side hard enough to dent the canvas. Another thud, and the carriage shuddered violently, as if two of the wheels had just bounced over a sack of flour. He climbed into his seat and looked through the holes. His stomach dropped. 
The driver's body was twisted horribly, a few inches of the quarrel's snapped shaft jutting from his chest as blood trickled in little branching rivulets along the mortar lines between the cobbles. The horse was in a blind panic, and the carriage was gathering speed. He'd have been fine with that had he not felt at least two of the wheel's spokes snap when he ran over the driver. The carriage wobbled dangerously, skidding back and forth behind the terrified horse. He was going to crash. With every twist in the road, the carriage pitched him one way or the other. Were it not for his death grip on the edge of his seat, he'd have certainly been flung through one of the doors, which rattled on the slender brass chains that held them shut. Elias inched to the side of the carriage and bashed open the door with his boot, bursting the chain in a spray of brass. The door banged open, and Elias clawed for purchase on the edge of the frame. The wind whipped his hair into his face as he climbed gingerly out onto the running board. The cobbles raced by a foot below his feet, and up ahead the jacksum loomed like a black serpent. If he landed wrong, he'd snap his ankle or crack his skull on the cobbles. The violent shuddering of the carriage had turned his legs to pudding, and he braced himself to take a running leap in the same direction as the speeding carriage. He never got the chance. The instant before he jumped, the horse hit a sharp turn and the carriage hurled him end over end, over the edge of the street and down the steep embankment toward the river. He heard a crash and a scream that sounded almost human. As he tumbled along the hard-packed mud, the rushing black water rising to meet him. His instincts took over. As he splashed into the jacksum, his hand closed around the hilt of his dirk. He wrenched it from his sheath and slammed it deep into the mud. His whole weight jerked against his wrist, the jacksum's current tugging hungrily at his legs and ankles, but the knife held fast. He clawed his way out of the water, spitting silt, and threw himself flat on the embankment, his chest heaving. He could hear the horse screaming. When he dragged himself to the top of the embankment, he saw that lamps had been lit in many of the dark windows of the rickety Copper District shanties. The carriage had flipped onto its side, and the horse was sprawled in front of it, thrashing in its tangled harness. One of its legs was broken. The beast was lathered with sweat, eyes rolling in thick, foamy spittle flecking the cobbles with every gasp. Pale faces appeared in the illuminated windows. People were emerging sleepily from their homes, women in nightdresses, men pulling on breeches even as they stepped outside. A low murmur rippled through the gathering crowd, mingling with the throaty cackle of the jacksum, and above it all the steady, high-pitched cry of the wounded horse. Elias ignored them. He could walk, or at least limp, and that was something. Battlefire and the wine that was still coursing through his veins blunted the worst of his aches. He'd find out if anything was more seriously wrong with him come morning. His head snapped down the street in the direction he'd come. For an instant, he imagined he saw those cloaked wraiths pressing through the throng, crossbows primed, ready to put him down with another volley. That red-haired devil with the slate-gray gaze bearing down on him with the fury of a seven-year spent waiting. It made him shudder. But there was no one there. Only a few sleek, puffy faces that were curious or frightened or both. The gray keep framed above them with light pouring from all her many windows and arrow slits. He could just make out the glow from his own window above the churning waterfall. 
He was still holding the dirk, the blade caked with mud. He looked down briefly at the horse that had saved him, and he felt a strange flutter of gratitude somewhere down deep. He dropped to his knee and drove his dirk into the great beast's spine at the base of its skull. The night felt strangely quiet after that, for the low folk shut up quick when the horse's scream stopped. Elias wiped his blade and waited for the keepers to come. Thank you guys so much for listening. It really does mean the world to be able to share this story with you. I have a confession to make. I actually just recorded this entire episode, was all finished with it, went to stop the recording, and realized that I had not recorded audio. So I am absolutely exhausted. As always, it is a huge favor if you leave a five-star review for this podcast on Spotify, Apple, wherever you get your podcast. And if you're enjoying the story, you can do me a favor and share it with a friend. All right, I am going to go drink some water, and I will catch you all next week.